Hello, and welcome to Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. My name is Taylor, and I'll be one of your hosts today. First off, I uh, just want to shout out one of our new Patreon subscribers. I know I'm human, so <laughs> it's always fun to get a pseudonym used on Patreon, so we definitely appreciate the support and hope you enjoy the bonus content. And with all of that, go ahead and bring in Tanner from snowy Appleton, Wisconsin. I was going to say, I think I know I'm human is the kind of thing that an AI would definitely say. So we'll keep a healthy eye on this new patron. As long as they have a credit card that runs, I guess they can continue to pretend. That's that's all the AI needs to be human. Yeah, it's just a credit card. I mean, honestly, if corporations can be considered human, basically, why can't an AI? Uh, so how is it going from snowy Wisconsin? Uh, it's good. I'm actually, we're recording this on a Thursday, which is weird, but that's because I suddenly had the day off work because campus is closed uh, nice. because of our big snowstorm. So yeah, we've gotten definitely upwards of a foot. The initial predictions were like 18 inches. I think it's maybe less than that, but it's been a lot of snow. 18 is a lot of inches. That's a lot of snow. Otherwise, stuff's going pretty well. What have you been consuming? What's your media? Other than snow reports. Um, so as I've mentioned recently, I've been trying to be more disciplined with uh, reading in some of my second languages. First book for the year was the book We uh, by Yevgeny Zamyatin, reading that in Russian. That one's pretty short. That was relatively manageable. Uh, I've moved over to reading the book uh, Red Cavalry mm -hmm. by Isaac Babel. Uh, so that's my next project is getting through that uh, something a little bit longer. Uh, something obviously a very different setting. It's more of a historical book. It's a, a set of short stories uh, that I really enjoyed reading in English. So looking forward to getting into those in the original Russian. Nice. How about you? Uh, well, not as impressive as reading it in the original Russian, but I'm continuing to plow away at the Master and Margarita. It's been really fun. I'm like halfway through it now. So I've you know, kind of got to some of the bigger scenes that do happen. The first scene in the theater is pretty crazy like it mm -hmm. it's definitely got its hooks in me pretty good so the hero has appeared so it's uh it's great it's fun i've been enjoying it. it's nice reading a fiction book like i said i haven't done that in a while uh my other thing ready for the nba to resume tonight i never thought i would say that i'm just i'm excited uh the all-star break is over so we get to a lot of good games tonight and start the second half of the season i don't know i'm excited for that as well yeah the last few days in sports were kind of rough because it's just like Football's over. Baseball hasn't started yet. And then there was a break in the NBA. Other than the, a couple of good uh, college basketball games, that there wasn't much. Looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to baseball season, seeing more and more spring training news. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's good. I mean, the Brewers are already struggling with injuries. Tyrone Taylor is going to be out for a bit. Not a wonderful start, but we'll see how the uh, how the Brewers do. Yeah, that is always exciting. Kind of get that first like uh, sign of spring. I guess when you start seeing like spring training stuff and everything. So, well, let's talk about something that isn't fun. Shipwrecks. Fun to talk about, not fun to do, I guess we should say. Yeah. Actually, and we'll even, we'll keep it in the, uh, in El Central because we're going to go to Pittsburgh area cool. today. Today, we're going to talk about the Elizabeth M. Uh, I know we were talking a little bit before we started recording. I actually kind of remember this one because we had just moved to Pittsburgh kind of in this time period. I remember it happening. I, had, I, don't, I couldn't have told you any of the details of it or, or anything like that. I honestly thought it was a tugboat and 
technically it's not, but uh, you said you didn't really recall any of it. I mean, I would have been, I guess I would have been in eighth grade at this point. Shipwreck's not hitting too high on the radar at that point, right? Just trying to survive middle school. No, yeah, I think in eighth grade, I was mostly obsessed with uh, reading guitar magazines and like not being able to match any of the stuff that I was trying to do um, (laughs) in terms of proficiency. And yeah, I feel like that was most of what I remember from eighth grade. That was the year we played the talent show. I do remember that. We played Moby Dick by Led Zeppelin, a song I had never heard before. We played it. Yeah, so that was my eighth grade, I guess. So no, I, I, I was not paying attention to Riverine accidents. So a little background about the Elizabeth M. She's built in 1951, and she's owned by Campbell Transportation Company. 108 feet long, 26 and a half foot beam with an eight foot draft. So pretty typical for like these towboats. If you've you know lived in the Midwest, you've probably seen these things. She's manned by a crew of seven. Basically, these boats are designed to operate in shallow draft areas, and they're made to push barges. A little bit about towboats. This is a vessel that's made with river navigation in mind. So they're kind of specifically made for all the things that that entails. Generally, these vessels have a shallow draft, like I said, and they have a square bow that allows them to push a group of barges that are lashed together. These boats have their roots actually kind of in the type of vessel we talked about last week, something like the Moselle. You know, if you've read any Mark Twain story set on the Mississippi, you can kind of picture what we're talking about. This is just the modern version of. One of the first applications of towboats when they kind of came about was to push showboats, which typically lacked steam engines in order to free up space for the theaters on board. So that's kind of where you see this coming out of this concept of, hey, we're going to build just a boat that can push another craft, essentially. Is a showboat just a boat you would go on to watch a show? Yeah, it's like a theater type situation. Okay, I didn't know a showboat was a real thing. I thought it was just like a term, but I guess that term had to come from somewhere. I think it's also, isn't there also a play, the showboat, show something? I don't know. The showgirls. Showgirls. The, the showgirls are on the showboat. That's where you go to see them. So if you live in the Midwest, particularly along the Ohio or Mississippi rivers, you've definitely seen these vessels in action. Typically, you're going to see them pushing barges with like coal or grain, corn, like some type of big commodity, uh, concrete, some kind of aggregate. Uh, Back to baseball for a second. Great American Ballpark, where the Cincinnati Reds play, actually provides a really great view of these boats on the Ohio River. And that's a good thing, considering the Reds are projected to win about 65 games this year. (laughs) And for our non-baseball friends, that's not good. Great American Ballpark, last time I was there was probably 2015 and it was star wars night um (laughs) and someone hit a home run and they set off the fireworks like by the the smokestack thing Mm -hmm. and the smokestacks caught on fire that's my last memory of great american ballpark we just keep going back to things like bursting into flames right there in cincinnati on the ohio on the ohio river uh, one important thing to keep mo- in mind as we go through this is, although they're referred to as towboats, these vessels typically, well, not typically, like always, push barges as they transit the river. Mm-hmm. I thought that was kind of funny that they call them towboats, but they push. Push boats, shove boats. Showboats and shove boats. Shove boats and love boats. <laughs> 
Currently in the United States, there's around 12,000 miles of commercially navigable waterways, and these are maintained by the Army Corps of Engineers. Now, it's funny because like one of the things historically where like the Viking Age, the reason that the Vikings were able to influence so many areas is because so many of the rivers that cut through Europe are like wholly navigable, especially mm-hmm. for shallow drafted vessels. The Vikings would have had an absolute field day in North America had they stayed a little bit longer. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting that that is one of the things, you know, we could probably do a whole episode on how these rivers allowed for westward expansion. And we kind of touched on that. I thought you meant like an alternate history series where the Vikings are exploring. Oh, we could definitely do that too. North America. (laughs) But yeah, like we kind of touched on that last week with the growth of Cincinnati and everything. Uh, So as is common with maritime shipping, one of the biggest advantages of this type of transportation method is that you're able to use relatively little effort to move a massive amount of product cheaply. One barge has the same capacity as 15 rail hoppers or 58 semi-trailers. So, you know, you'll see 10, 11, 12 of these lashed together pretty frequently. So if you have 10 of them, that's 580 tractor trailers, essentially. Which is like more than the carrying capacity of some smaller transportation companies, probably, I assume. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, that's an industry I'm very familiar with. And yeah, like mm-hmm. 580 trailers, is that's a, that's a lot of freight that you could potentially move. So now that we have a little bit of that background established, let's dig into the incident. A little note before we get into it, this episode, there's a lot of little technical things going on. We will post on Instagram and Twitter uh, some of the charts from the accident report, and they definitely help give you like a visual aid of what's going on. Uh, It makes a lot more sense when you can see it visually. So on January 8th, 2005, around 9.34 a.m., the Elizabeth M. received handwritten orders from Campbell Transportation Company. This is from the dispatchers in the form of a fax, because it's 2005 and we use faxes. I saw that, and like that still seems outdated for the time. Writing things out by hand and faxing them? Yeah, you would be surprised like how old like some of the technology that a lot of transportation companies use because it works mm-hmm. and they don't want to change it. Um, even in my work, we use some software that's from like the 80s because it just works. I had to explain what a fax was to my <laughs> students one time. We actually still send faxes from time to time, too, in, in my job. The only time I've ever sent a fax is when I worked at Office Depot. That was a service mm-hmm. that was provided at the uh, the print shop area that people would need things faxed sometimes. So I've never sent a fax for myself, but I have sent it for some of the elderly residents of Pewaukee, Wisconsin. I feel like, too, now with being able to scan onto your phone, um, that's oh, yeah. definitely gone away yeah, even for more. Sure. Uh, so in addition to the orders for the Elizabeth M, the fax also contained orders for the towboats Richard C., and Oliver Shearer. We'll attach a picture of that too. That is in the report, and it is literally just a handwritten note, essentially. Prior to receiving these orders, Elizabeth M. had been stationed at the W.H. Samus Power Plant, and that's in Stratton, Ohio. This is at mile marker 53 on the Ohio River. So if you're looking on a map, this is basically just over the border from Pennsylvania into Ohio along the river. So do the mile markers on the Ohio River start at the confluence in Pittsburgh? Yes. Yeah, the mile markers have nothing to do with state borders. Right. 
So yeah, this is about 53 miles downriver from Pittsburgh. Okay. Uh, Elizabeth M's first order of business that day was to deliver 15 empty barges to DTC Environmental Services, and that's located at mile marker 47.3. So pretty short trip overall, and they're going upriver. Next, the towboat returned to Samus Landing to pick up four barges that were delivered to the Georgetown fleet located at mile marker 39. That's kind of where this company operates out of. They have a lot of stuff there, so they're just moving some stuff around to get stuff staged and everything. But again, another pretty short trip overall, and all of these trips are actually in the same pool of water. They're located downriver from the Montgomery Locks and Dam. So they kind of talk about it as different pools if you're above or below a certain dam, essentially, because that's what really restricts your movement. That's the part that takes a while to get through. So the first two trips, they don't have to, you know, go through there. But for their final trip, it's a little bit longer. They would be going to the Tomino Marine Incorporated Company, and that's located at mile marker 20 on the Monongahela River. So obviously a lot further because you have to travel all of that distance up the Ohio and then another 20 miles into the Monongahela. And then I guess just to further our Pittsburgh connection here. If you look at a map of the city of Pittsburgh or like an aerial view, you'll see the Monongahela is one of the rivers that joins to make the Ohio. The other one is the Allegheny. So we're on the Monongahela River here. Cur- well, that's where she's supposed to go. Okay, she's we're getting still, there. Yeah, yeah, we're still going to be on the Ohio. Um, so the trip was significantly longer than the previous ones that the Elizabeth M had completed that day. And in addition to that, the Richard C.'s final order listed on the facts was that she was supposed to link up with the Elizabeth M. in Georgetown and assist her in delivering these six loaded coal barges to the Tomino Marine Company. So the biggest thing that's different here is that she's taking loaded barges, which are much heavier, upriver. And she's going to have to lock through the Montgomery Lock and dams. Uh, So it's important to remember that the trip would be against the flow of the river and with loaded barges. Like I said, this is a much more difficult trip than she had done earlier in the day, and it's much longer. High water warnings had previously been issued. However, they had since expired. So one important thing to remember is these rivers catch all of the water in the basin that they drain. So if there's rain even somewhere else, you know, that can affect the water level in the river. And the higher the water level, generally the faster the flow. Uh, So the master of the Elizabeth M would later testify that he understood the orders as, I was to pick them six loads up and continue on up the river. If the Richard C wasn't there, he would catch up with me at some point in time. And we go up together to them other loads that the Oliver Shearer was going to take. The master of the Richard C would later state that he understood the orders as, I was supposed to meet the Elizabeth M at Georgetown, Get in tow with them to shove six loads back up river to Tonomo. So you can see that there's a little bit of a difference in what's going on here. The Richard C. is thinking that the Elizabeth M. will wait. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Elizabeth M. thinks that the Richard C. will catch up to them. That's going to be kind of important as we continue to go through this, that everyone's not quite on the same page. Around 10 p.m. on January 8th, 2005, the Elizabeth M completed building the tow with the assistance of the vessel Rocket. Um, this was in Georgetown. So she departs Georgetown with the barges, 
configured as two units wide and three units long. So these are the six loaded barges. She's able to achieve a speed of three and a half miles an hour while traveling against the river current. So far, so good. You can see that she, in fact, did not wait for the Richard C. to link up with her. She's got her work done, and they're going to start this pretty long trip. One of the crew members would later testify that there had been discussions amongst the deck crew of the Elizabeth M. and Rocket about concern for the upcoming trip. Uh, there was concern that the river conditions might cause the barges to submerge or break the tow line. Furthermore, the crew member would testify that he relayed these concerns to the lead deckhand. However, these concerns were not sent to the pilot house. Uh, the lead deckhand would testify that he was not concerned about making the trip and that he was not aware of any concerns by the crew. The lead deckhand in this had five years of experience, while the crew member that claimed he raised concern only had six months. So definitely note the contradictory testimony. And I mean, this is kind of an example of poor crew resource management, right? I mean, how can the new guy know anything? Yeah, that and and also if you're the more experienced person, if you're used to talking to more experienced people, then maybe what this less experienced person thinks of as raising a concern, maybe it didn't sound that way to the more experienced person or it right. wasn't couched in the language that normally this thing would be if it was a serious concern about something. Mm -hmm. Around 10.40 p.m., the Richard C. was en route to Georgetown, and she was going to drop a single barge that she had in tow and then link up with the Elizabeth M. Uh, she had just reached the Montgomery Lock Locks and Dam on her journey downriver, and she would begin the transiting process at 11.07 p.m. So she is headed downriver. They're headed in opposite directions currently. Because, you know, the Richard C., she's still trying to catch up, essentially. She would complete the lockage process at 11.34 p.m. and continue proceeding towards Georgetown. Around midnight, it's noted in the Coast Guard report that the weather and river conditions began to deteriorate. How often do we say that in these stories? Mm -hmm. So back to 11 p.m., the Elizabeth M. makes her way past Old Lock 7. Here she notices a reduction in freeboard and a decrease in speed. This is actually a known phenomena when passing over Old Lock 7. Two of the crew members were sent forward to monitor the situation. They noted that water was splashing onto the main deck, but it did not enter the cargo hoppers of the lead barges. Is this like a lock that is now totally underwater? Yeah, it's just a it's an old lock that doesn't exist anymore. So they're having to, I guess, go over some of this lock infrastructure. Yeah, and I think oh. that the, it just does stuff with the currents and everything. That makes sense. I mean, it, it seems like it would work almost the same as like a rapid to a smaller extent if it's some obstacle. It's a water. known issue in that area. So nothing atypical about what's yeah. going on at this point. Uh, upon clearing Old Lock 7, the vessel is able to increase her speed to about 2 miles an hour, which she would then maintain until getting to Montgomery Locks and Dam. Just after midnight, there is a conversation between the Elizabeth M. and the Richard C., and they arrange a passing agreement. The vessels would safely pass near Shippingport, PA, and that's around the 34.5-mile marker of the Ohio River. This raises a question, but I think the question I have will also be the question that the the Coast Guard report has. <laughs> so. Yes. What what is your question? My question is if they were if they were ordered if if the orders were to work together, and we know that that there was that discrepancy. But I get yeah. The question I would have is 
so if these things are setting up a passing agreement, they're mm-hmm. passing each other, but like neither of them has a question about what the other one is doing. So you would think, especially if you were the Richard C, you'd be like, hey, what are you doing? Yeah. So I've got questions. So there's no discussion between the two vessels as to why Elizabeth M is seemingly deviating from the plan that had been sent by the company earlier in the day. Later, when asked by Campbell Transportation why the Elizabeth M had left Georgetown without the Richard C, the crew member of the Richard C stated that he didn't ask. Hmm. Although he was observing something that deviated from the plan understood by the Richard C, the crew member failed to inquire with the Elizabeth M or notify the master of the Richard C. So he doesn't even tell the person on board his vessel that might have a little more pull about what's going on. Uh, The president of Campbell Transportation would later testify that the crew member should have called the office when he knew that the Elizabeth M departed Georgetown without the Richard C. Basically, yeah, like, see something, say something. If you see someone not doing the thing we've told them to do, we need to know about it. Yeah, at minimum, just to cover your own ass Mm -hmm. and, and make sure that you have done your due diligence to get everything squared away. If plans have changed, then plans have changed, but it's like double check. Right, right. So without the Richard C., the president of Campbell Transportation and the master of the Richard C. did not consider the Elizabeth M. to be adequate to transport the six loaded barges in the current river conditions. So again, maybe if he had told the master of the Richard C. what was going on, he would have taken a little more direct action. So didn't consider the Elizabeth M. to be adequate for transport of the six loaded barges. Mm-hmm. I feel like that also is an issue that has come up a few times of awareness or lack of awareness of a vessel's capabilities mm-hmm. and sort of going through with something because that's part of the part of the instructions without attention paid to can the vessel actually handle this and is this a logical thing for the orders to have told me to do right and I think also like just the idea of like oh well, nothing bad's going to happen like we've done this mm-hmm. before it's that thing of I know there's procedures, but sometimes we don't do them, and it works out usually. So the surviving master of Elizabeth M. would testify that he considered the Elizabeth M. to be adequately equipped for the task. So, you know, kind of that thing, it's my vessel, I know what she can do. And as we saw in our last episode with the Moselle and our numerous racing steamboat captains, sometimes the captain isn't maybe the best authority on what the ship can or can't handle. This is true. At 12.20 a.m. on January 5th, Elizabeth M. contacted the Montgomery Locks and Dam for an upbound lockage. So she's going still the opposite direction that the uh, Richard C. previously locked through. About a minute later, she would arrive at the locks. And then about 30 minutes after that, the vessel would begin her approach to the Montgomery Lock. So, you know, it's a process that takes a little while. Like, that's why they kind of have these different pools that they talk about, because going through a lock is like, it's a common thing that you do, but it is something that adds time to your trip. By 1.32 a.m., the Elizabeth M. completed her entry into the main chamber of the Montgomery Lock. This was accomplished without incident. The Elizabeth M. then began to execute a maneuver known as a knockout lockage. Knockout lockout. <laughs> so this is when the towboat is separated from the barges and moves alongside them during the lockage process. This is done when the overall consist of towboat and barge is longer than the lock itself. So that's your problem here is if the towboat is behind the barges, it's too long to fit in the lock. I pictured this like 
someone at like a hotel pushing a lo- a, a long cart into a elevator mm-hmm. and you're standing behind it, but maybe it's too long. And so you have to like move up next to it so that the door can close. Exactly. That's what's going to happen here is that they're going to release the barges essentially in the lock and move to the side of the barges because they have plenty of room widthwise. They just don't have it lengthwise. At the time of the Elizabeth M's transit, there's three people working in the Montgomery locks and dam. There's a lead lockman and two locksmen. As listed in the Coast Guard report, there's five operating conditions that are peculiar to the Montgomery locks and dam. Probably each of these locks have like unique characteristics. Some are probably easy, some are probably more difficult. Anytime you have something like this, like there's just no standardization in this process because there's so many factors that go into how deep the river is, how wide it is, what's the flow rate, all of that. So for this particular lock, uh, these five conditions are the outdraft at the upper approach, the stronger the current flow over the dam, the stronger the outdraft. So essentially, if there's more river flow, that outdraft is going to be stronger. That makes sense. Uh, the eddy current at the lower approach. So there's this current that basically both of these currents want to kick you out into the middle of the river immediately when you try to exit or enter the lock. Next, we've already talked about it. It's the short lock chamber. What's called a 600-foot lock is actually only 592 feet. That may not seem like a big difference, but potentially it can be when you have to add these extra maneuvers. Uh, four, there is a constant wind noted in this lock that you know is going to push you around a little bit and make it more difficult. And five is that towboats may have trouble exiting the lock after a downbound lockage when the lock's lower gauges reach 24 feet. Uh, again, it tends to push the towboat back into the lock chamber. So keep in mind, in this instance, there had just been a downbound lockage prior to the Elizabeth M entering the lock. Mm. Uh, these conditions are all known to Campbell transportation operators, so none of this should be unexpected. Right. Additionally, the locks and dam had a restricted area both above and below the dam. Uh, This restricted area is designated by the District Engineer of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. And basically what this means is that no vessel is to enter this area at any time. The restricted area around Montgomery Locks and Dam extended the width of the river. It was from 1,000 feet above the dam and 500 feet below the dam. So basically this is just a big no-go zone. Like there is no reason for you to ever be in here for anything. So... I don't think I understand the setup here. How could a boat go through this? Oh, wait. So this is the is the dam and the lock the same thing? They're like in line with each other across the river. Basically, you have a path through the locks and Mm -hmm. that's how you go. Like you don't go towards the dam. I see. Okay, that's what I was confused about. I was talking about the width of the river. I didn't know how a ship could traverse the river if this restricted zone goes all the way across the river. Almost think of it. I mean, think of the lock as like a bridge essentially. And like, you have to stay on this path until you're clear of like that excluded area. Gotcha. Uh, Keep that in mind again, for no reason should you ever enter the excluded zone, the forbidden zone. So while the Elizabeth M was in the lock chamber, the dam gates were raised from 83 feet to 89 feet. By raising the level six feet, the flow rate over the dam was increased by 13,000 cubic feet per second. 
So we're putting even more water over the dam now, and there's already quite a bit of water going over it. So that current is going to be moving. Uh, this results in an increased upper outdraft at the upper approach to the lock. So that's one of those conditions we've been talking about previously. It's wanting that when you exit that lock, it's going to want to kick you out into the middle of the river, which is where the forbidden zone is. Mm-hmm. At 1.54 a.m., the Elizabeth M. begins to position herself to face up the toe. By facing up the toe, what they're saying is they're going to move those barges forward now that they can move out of the lock, and they're going to get in position behind it like they were. Mm-hmm. She would move the barges about 200 feet out of the lock before releasing the toe and maneuvering around to the stern side. While getting in position, the barges were adrift with no means of positive control. So you're kind of just hoping they sit where they are, essentially. At 1.57 a.m., the Elizabeth M. completes her repositioning, and she has the tow faced up. So far, so good. At this point, the towboat and some of the barges are still within the main lock chamber, and this is when the effect of the outflow would have been felt at the head of the tow. So the towboat and four of the barges are still in the chamber with relatively... Not a lot of effect going on with the current, but those first two barges are now being pushed towards the middle of the river. And at this point, they have not been reattached? Yeah, they faced it up. They're attached. They're going to start pushing this thing. Okay. But again, you have different forces acting on different parts Mm -hmm. of the string of barges. At this point, the tow is out of shape, and she begins to get pushed towards the middle of the river. Just after facing up the tow, one of the surviving crewmen of the Elizabeth M. noted that the boat was riding against the land side wall of the lock. So as we go through this, keep in mind with the lock, there's going to be the land side and then there's going to be like the river side. Mm -hmm. At this point, the Elizabeth M. is riding up against the land side of the lock with those lead barges pushing out towards the middle of the river. Okay, so she's just twisting. Exactly. Rotating kind of. Yeah, but she's contained within that lock, so she can only go so far. Uh-huh. By 2 a.m., she had completed the lockage process, and she's ready to exit. At 2.02 a.m., the Elizabeth M. impacts the middle lock wall. So this is the wall that separates the commercial lock from the recreational lock. There's a much smaller one for small recreational boats, but that is on the river side of the lock. So she's twisting around in the lock, essentially. So she was up against the land side, and now she's... Back to the other side? Yes. Yep. Okay. She's kind of pinballing back and forth. Okay. This caused damage to the wires that connected the barges, and the deck crew acted quickly to get the situation under control and to prevent the loss of the barges. After the impact, the towboat continued to make headway upriver, angling towards the middle of the river. So she's trying to push out of that lock, but as she does, she's just angling more out into the middle. At this time, one of the locksmen on duty observed. Elizabeth M. was going out toward the center river a little quicker than what I've seen other people do. So, you know, this is the this is their job, right? They watch these boats lock through all the time. So if he's noticing something's a little off, probably going to have to really respect that opinion. Overall, it just seems that he's concerned about how quickly they're trying to do this. Mm hmm. He would also report this to the lock leader via radio. So unlike some of the other people in the story, he does a good job of being like, hey, there might be an issue here. Like, this just doesn't look right. And the whole like restricted zone, 
that's there. I assume I assume there's a security aspect behind that, but also a safety aspect. Uh, yeah, you don't want to go over the dam. Yeah, like to, to keep people a certain distance away from potentially going over the dam. Yeah, that's bad. Okay. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, currents and things that happen when you have these big structures. You know, I think back to being out on Kerr Lake in Henderson, North Carolina. There's a massive dam on that lake, and there's a lot of buoys marking you like a thousand feet out of like, do not enter this space because you will be sucked towards the dam. So between 202 and 206, the general alarm is sounded on board the Elizabeth M. At this point, you know, we've done these stories enough to know they don't just sound that for fun. It's pretty clear that something is going on. All of the crew members would respond to this alarm, with one crew member testifying that he felt a large bump just before the general alarm sounded. At 2.06 a.m., the toe of the Elizabeth M. impacted the riverside of the lock wall. So this is the barges, the barges towards the front of the consist. They're impacting the riverside of the lock wall now. Again, consult the diagrams. It will help this make so much more sense. This impact would part the line securing the lead barges of the starboard string in the tow. The wire between the starboard bow and the lead barge in the port string and the port bow on the lead barge in the starboard string. This is really dense, and I had to reread this stuff a lot. Point being, some of these barges are no longer attached properly, and they're not going to behave properly as this continues. The starboard string lead barge swung around in front of the port string lead barge, and they ended up in a bow-to-bow configuration. Mm. This also results in the two lead barges facing downstream towards the dam. So think of it at this point that the two lead barges are out of the lock, but they've twisted around. And now they're like stacked, basically. Is that what what I'm seeing here? They're facing downriver, while... Mm -hmm the Elizabeth M is trying to go upriver. So you've got a problem. They're basically wrapped around the entry, the downbound entry to the lock. Okay. At this point, the lock leader asked via radio if the Elizabeth M required any assistance. The vessel would reply back, I think we got it under control. I think we can handle it. Such typical men here. The crew then attempted to secure the barges to mooring cells on the river wall which they were able to do. So there's a lot of tie-off points and stuff like that here for this very situation. You know, this right. this is something that happens. It's not supposed to happen, but it does. And you know, you can see that the crew doesn't seem that worried about it. And even the lock, you know, the locksmen are like, "Do you need help?" "Oh, you don't." Okay. At this point, the master of the Elizabeth M noticed that the towboat was swinging towards the landside lock wall. So now the Elizabeth M is swinging back the other direction towards the landside wall. He ordered, fan your rudders, steer to starboard. Immediately after this order, the towboat's starboard quarter impacted the landside lock wall. So again, it's just that pinballing effect of going back and forth in the lock. So now as these bar- bar- the barges that are outside the lock, as they're being pulled around by the current, it's pulling the Elizabeth M harder against the wall exactly kind of slamming her back into it this would result in damage to the lines on the starboard side of the vessel so again every time this is happening you're putting more strain and stress on these lines that are trying to secure these barges i would imagine that the way that the barges are secured i have i imagine they have a lot more like i don't know if tensile strength is the word for it but more so than like side to side impacts that they're 
probably built to handle. I would imagine. Yeah. I mean, you're not really planning on this thing landing into the yeah, whipping walls. back and forth and everything. This is not what they're meant to do. The toe would continue to rotate around the end of the river side of the lock, basically heading towards the dam. So these barges are continuing to want to go that direction. To counter this, the Elizabeth M attempted to push the barges further upriver towards the mooring cells located above the upper end of the landside lock wall. So her goal here is to push them further upriver and get to the point where we can tie them off to the landside and try to pull them back, essentially. Between 206 and 210, the pilot of the Richard C. spoke with the pilot of the Elizabeth M via telephone and told them that he could not proceed upstream due to the strong currents. So this is the vessel that was supposed to help her. But this master is deciding that it's too bad for even just his boat to be out there, that he doesn't feel that it's safe to be in it. So the, the pilot of the Richard C. says that the Richard C. cannot go upriver. Correct. Okay. Yeah, he decides that it's not safe to be out there in these conditions. The Elizabeth M. responded that he had two barges hanging over the outside wall and that he could not talk right now. The Richard C. then contacted Campbell Transportation Dispatchers and indicated that he thought the Elizabeth M. was in trouble. So keep in mind, Campbell Transportation doesn't even know this is going on until now. Mm -hmm. The Richard C. would then attempt to contact the Elizabeth M. again but was told they were, they were too busy to talk. At 2.10, Campbell Transportation would make contact with Elizabeth M. The vessel indicated that they were kinda in trouble and that the MV Lillian G was en route to assist. So at some point, they had made contact with this other vessel that was willing to come out there and try to help them correct this issue. At 2.14, Elizabeth M. was able to push the tow up to the 800-foot mark on the landside wall so, you know, they're beginning to achieve the thing that they want to do. They're trying to get this thing away from the dam and upriver. But again, the whole time you're trying to push these loaded barges that aren't configured properly anymore against a really swift current without the help that you were supposed to wait for. At this time, it's reported to the pilot house that the stern barge in the port string is beginning to sink. Fearing that the barge might cause other barges in the tow or the towboat itself to sink, the order was given to cut the sinking barge loose. When this was attempted, the deck crew was unable to release the barge as the wires had tightened up and the barge had lost too much freeboard. There Basically, there's too much tension on the lines to release these barges. Kind of what you were talking about is that these lines aren't meant to be under these kind of stresses. So now they can't release this barge that's causing them even more problems. At 2.15, the Lillian G departs the Bruce Mansfield power plant in response to the call for help from Montgomery locks and dam personnel. So the crew at the lock had basically taken it upon themselves to call in extra help. That's the help that the captain of the Elizabeth M is referencing. Uh, she's located about one mile below the lock, so she's not too far away. At 2.18, after the unsuccessful attempt to release the single sinking barge, the decision was made to release the entire consist of barges. The Elizabeth M then positioned herself on the starboard side of the barges and placed a line onto the timberhead of the starboard bow at the center barge. So basically what they're saying is we can't release just the one, but we can cut all of them and then try to recapture them. Okay. Almost think like Apollo 13, like when you have to like, you know, connect the two different craft. 
that's kind of what they're gonna try to do is cool um recapture these things after they cut them loose all right but as we know they're operating really close to this restricted zone and by this time the towboat and the barges were located well within this established zone they're again the river's continuing to push them towards the dam she is able to recapture them However, shortly after recapturing the barges, the towboat attempts to back her way upstream, but she's not able to make any headway. Hmm. So she's basically trying to pull these now up the river, which we've talked about before is not something that they typically do. So they're in a bad position. The barges are not faced up and they're trying to pull rather than push these things. So the whole thing is not good. They're in a very bad position. At this point, the decision is made to turn the barges loose again, essentially. After releasing the barges, the Elizabeth M. attempts to turn to port and position her bow upstream. This resulted in the starboard side of the vessel colliding with the now free-floating barges. Attempts to move away from the barges were unsuccessful. Basically, they can't control the vessel anymore. That's why you don't go in the restricted zone. And they're having to try to do that Amongst now all of these big, heavy pieces of debris. But yeah, yeah, a free-floating loaded coal barges. Yeah. yeah. So it's just, it's impossible to control this craft. At 219, the Lillian G, while en route to assist, notices two barges adrift, partially submerged. And keep in mind, she's below the dam. That means that these two submerged barges would have had to have gone over the dam. Right. Upon arrival at the lock... Uh, She sees the lights of the Elizabeth M above the dam. Seconds later, these lights were gone. Hmm. At 2.20, the Elizabeth M went over the Montgomery Dam. One of the locksmen would testify. Before it went and started over the rollers, the whole stern was completely submerged, and the rest of the quarterdeck and so forth went very fast. The only part I could physically see was the wheelhouse, and the tow knees on the bow of the towboat on both sides. I can only see maybe a foot of that. So the vessel initially struck the dam at a 45 degree angle on the starboard side of the vessel, then spun and went over the dam stern first through the spillway at dam gate six. After going over the dam, the stern of the vessel submerged, then resurfaced and drove the bow of the vessel into the outflow coming through the spillway. The bow then resurfaced, the stern resubmerged, and the Elizabeth M sank almost immediately. So basically, you can see it's just getting tossed around. It's like when you have a bath toy and you like drag it to the bottom and watch it pop up. That's essentially what's happening here. The vessel came to rest between dam gates five and six. The four barges that remained in the pool above the dam would sink and come to rest around dam gates one, two, three, and four. The two barges that made it downriver, the ones that the Lillian G had seen, one of them would be found at mile marker 33.5 on the Ohio River, in Ohio actually, and the other one was actually caught in the lower approaches to Montgomery Locks in that eddy current. Amazing to me that two of the barges could go over the dam and stay afloat. Yeah, partially at least, right? Uh, You also have to think about the navigational hazard that that presents, like these massive barges you know, flowing through a rapid flowing river. That's pretty scary, actually. And other barges, other towboats like this aren't exactly maneuverable enough to get out of the way. Exactly. 
That is the incident portion. That's that's where we're going to leave that. But we are going to talk about some of the conclusions that the Coast Guard had in their report. The U.S. Coast Guard report states that all causes of the casualty cannot be determined as four of the seven crew members died in the incident. There are gaps in conflicting times, and some of the information provided by witnesses doesn't always match. Most of these are minor and do not affect key events, and it's noted that this is common in eyewitness testimony, but it does make it hard to definitively prove some things. The high water conditions on the Ohio River contributed to the loss of the vessel. It's noted that the U.S. Coast Guard, Army Corps of Engineers, and the maritime industry were all using different standards for making determinations of when vessels were operating in high water conditions on the Ohio River. And that's pretty common. I think we see that a lot, that different organizations all have different standards. But really, when everyone's trying to work on the same things, there really should be one standard across the board. Yeah, I mean, I guess a comparison would be other conditions that are of concern to to ships and, and boat traffic is something like wind speed. It's like mm-hmm. that's something that ev- everyone agrees on how we're measuring this and there's standardized ways of discussing it. Exactly. I mean, most weather things, right? Like, what is a tornado watch? What is a tornado Mm -hmm. warning? Like, everyone needs to have the same standard in that regard. Approximate cause of the casualty was the departure of the Elizabeth M and the barges without the assistance of the Richard C. There's evidence of misconduct on the part of the master of the Elizabeth M for disobeying company orders by departing Georgetown without assistance. There is evidence of negligence by the pilot of the Richard C. for not taking appropriate actions when he knew the Elizabeth M. had departed Georgetown in violation of company orders. That's what we were talking about. So there, the, I guess the expected behavior there, based on these recommendations, is that he would have seen that, come to the conclusion that there had been a miscommunication, and at least call someone to tell them, hey, the Elizabeth M. is taking these barges on her own. Yeah, essentially that hey, these orders that were given are not being followed, Mm -hmm. and that's a concern. The report also criticized the format and wording of the vessel orders issued by the Campbell Transportation Company on January 8, 2005. The orders for the Elizabeth M. read on their own do not provide enough detail without also reading the orders for the Richard C. It does not provide detail as to what help the Richard C. will provide. However, the report states that taken as a whole and considering the phone conversation between the two vessels, it is evident that the Richard C. was assigned as an assist vessel for the entire journey. I think that's interesting because like, I guess you could, if you wanted to try to claim any sort of uh, plausible deniability as the master of the Elizabeth M., it's, well, I read my orders. Why would I read what the Richard C. is doing? It's not pertinent to my day. It just seems like kind of a... It's like everyone has their their assignment on the tactical level, but with no larger understanding of how those are supposed to work together. Yeah, and once you see the um, note, you'll see that I don't really buy this because it didn't require much reading. It is not difficult to see that all three vessels' orders are laid out right in front of you. Mm-hmm. Also contributing to this incident was the schedule of the Richard C. established by the company. They did not allow ample time for the Richard C. to arrive at Georgetown to assist. Basically operating on too tight of a schedule. Ask Norfolk Southern how that goes. (laughs) A second proximate cause was the overconfidence of the striker pilot, pilot, and the master of the Elizabeth M. with regards to their abilities to regain control of the tow. Basically, 
the whole thing is caused by overconfidence by the leadership on board the vessel. As the chain of events unfolded, there were many opportunities to make decisions and take actions which would have prevented all or part of this casualty. The key decisions and events that allowed the chain of events to happen are as follows. 1. The decision of the striker pilot to continue shoving the tow out of the lock chamber and towards the open river, after the initial collision and before regaining full control of the barges as the head uh, at the head of the tow. So essentially trying to force this thing out of the lock. That's bad. Two, the decisions of the pilot to remove the line that had been secured between the riverside lock wall and the tow after the second collision. Basically saying that they should have just stayed tied off to the riverside. Because at least then you're anchored to a point. Right, to something. The decision of the master to shove the tow out of the somewhat protected area between the landside lock wall and the riverside lock wall into the open river in an attempt to reach the mooring cells at the upper end of the landside lock after the third collision. So this is when they try to move 800 feet up and tie off to the landside. Again, you're trying to fight the current and you're at least protected if you're within the lock. It's not ideal, but you're not risking someone's life at that point. Four, the decisions of the master to pursue the barges into the restricted zone above the dam. Essentially saying that that was always going to be a losing battle. And that at least if they had just cut them loose and let them go, you know, it's a bad day. You're probably going to get in trouble with the company, but you're not risking your boat going over the dam at that point. Yeah, it seems like this whole time, it once they start to sort of lose the integrity of the, the barge setup, it seems like the barges are always going to go over the mm-hmm. dam once they kind of get their nose out there in the river. But yeah, like you said, if you're cutting it loose, then like, yeah, someone's going to get chewed out. Someone might get fired, but at least no one dies probably. Right. Exactly. Next, the report notes actions that saved lives. They note that the actions of the Army Corps of Engineer personnel at the lock resulted in the successful rescue of three individuals. The response by the crew of the rocket saved the lives of two survivors, while the actions of the Sandy Drake and the crew of the Lillian G saved the final survivor and assisted in the quick recovery of three bodies. So they were actually able to cover recover three of the bodies right away. Uh, one would not be found till later. I believe it was in the vessel, actually, once they raised oh, okay. it. Um, but at least they're able to get pretty quick resolution as to that. Next, we have recommendations. Recommendations are that the U.S. Coast Guard, the Army Corps of Engineers, and maritime industry stakeholders should develop a single definition and process for determining when the Upper Ohio is in a state of high water. As we discussed before, everyone should be, you know, playing on the same field, essentially. They recommended the suspension and revocation of the master's license, the suspension and revocation of the pilot's license. Hmm. Additionally, they wanted to audit the Campbell Transportation Company's chemical drug testing program procedures to ensure compliance with federal laws and regulations. Was that? There was no evidence of there being any drug or alcohol issues in this case, but basically just saying like, hey, we need to tighten this up and make sure that that's not something going forward to ensure that that there's proper training and, and everyone's understanding what's going on. 
Campbell Transportation should review and revise company policy for scheduling vessel movements to ensure adequate time to execute orders. Uh, This goes back to the Richard C. And basically, it would have been impossible for her to do what they asked her to do that day. Trying to better schedule things, essentially, to not put people in this position. Finally, we come to those that were lost in the Elizabeth M. incident. Uh, It would result in the deaths of four people. Tom Fisher, 25, of Derry, PA. Scott Stewart, 36, of Elm Grove, West Virginia. Edward Krevda, 22, of West Brownsville, PA. And Rick Conklin, 40, of Crucible, PA. In the end, no criminal charges were filed against any of the parties involved. And I don't know. I don't know that there probably should have been any criminal charges here. This one seems the most where there's just kind of like a few things that are sort of marginal in terms of their quality, and it all sort of contributes to the situation. But it doesn't seem like anyone did anything, any single thing that was egregious. I mean, I I think suspending and revoking the licenses makes sense for the pilot and the master and everything. Like I can I can see why you would do that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, as far as like a manslaughter charge, like I just, I don't know. What does that do? From an operational standpoint, sure, it makes sense that you probably, you, maybe you could say, I, we don't want these people taking barges through the locks again. But yeah, I guess from from a legal standpoint, I don't, I don't see as much there. Mm-hmm. Compared to some of the other stories we've done where there are clear cut cases of essentially negligent homicide where mm-hmm. people don't get. Uh, convicted or charged with anything this seems to sort of pale in comparison to some of those things yeah absolutely so yeah that's the story of the elizabeth m i know it's a little um it's it's hard without the visuals so definitely check out instagram and twitter um we will post the chart that shows how all of this goes from the reports but um yeah i don't know kind of unintentionally doing an ohio river tragedy series here um the last couple weeks so With all of that, hope you guys have a great week, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening.